Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman. Now, previously on the show, we've discussed the importance of threat intelligence, the different kinds of threat intelligence, and the value of using multiple intelligence sources, as well as methods for automating the collection, normalization, and distribution of whatever your optimal threat intelligence might be across your security stack. But today, we're going to go behind the scenes a bit to look at how any particular set of threat intelligence evolves over time, even to the point where some of it may become worthless and new sources of threat intelligence might all of a sudden be needed. Now, to do this, I'm joined today by the Infoblox product managers over our threat intelligence and analytics, including machine learning and AI. Now, the first one you may recognize is having been on the show before, Drews McFarlane. Thanks for coming back. It's an honor to be here. And we have a first timer on the show, Karthik Hardos. Thanks for uh, being here with us, Karthik. Absolutely, Bob. Looking forward to this conversation. Now, uh, since I can't count on the exact same audience for every show, I want to do a little bit of a rehash here. Um, particularly, why multiple feeds? That's the question I get the, the most. You know, There's a lot of people who are new to threat intelligence, and they just think of it as a list of IOCs, and they don't really understand much about why one vendor's feeds might be different than another. Um, they tend to buy one product and it works well. And then a year or two later, they'll kick them out by another vendor because all of a sudden that one became less effective. Um, and, and it all boils down to, you know, just the effectiveness of, of the threat feeds. Now, Drews, we spent an entire episode on this. So maybe you can start by summarizing the key points about why someone would want more than just one source of threat intel. Absolutely. And uh, I think we may even have uh, covered this on multiple <laughs> of these uh, podcasts. But uh, yeah, the, the most important thing is, is that not every organization is identical. And, uh, you know, where you wouldn't want to do the one size fits all for your clothing, you don't want to do one size fits all when it comes to threat intelligence either. Uh, different organizations have different sensitivities uh, to the risk that, that's posed by threats. And an example I often give, uh, you think about two different organizations, you think about like a, uh, a university or a service provider, uh, they're going to want to be very lenient in terms of uh, what they allow, uh, just because they want to give people flexibility to go different places and they don't want to lock people down so much that they feel confined. So in that respect, you may want to be a little bit more broad with, uh, you know, like uh, basically you may want to be a little bit uh, less conservative when it comes to the types of threat intelligence that you include. Uh, compare that to somebody who's managing a data center or managing, say, your target and you're trying to protect your point of sales terminals. Those things are very deterministic and you know exactly what type of data should be going in and out of them. So you want to be a lot more stringent with the types of threat intelligence that you have there. The idea behind having different threat feeds is you can basically categorize them in terms of these are types of threats that you would probably want to block together. And you know, as a uh, as a more conservative organization, you can stack a lot of those things up to make sure that nothing potentially malicious gets in. Uh, and if you are uh, an organization that's required to be a lot more open and lenient, uh, you can just you know, basically block the things that you're absolutely positively 100% sure are not going to cause anybody any grief. Uh, Karthik, anything to add on that? Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, to add to what Drew's talked about, it having multiple feeds allow users to uh, configure the environment they, they want as to certain set of feeds. They can make it blocking certain set of feeds. They can apply policy to just log it. 
so that they can understand this is happening, but not necessarily block it. It controls the sensitivity of the organization as how they want to do it. And also from other aspect, it helps us have different vendors, the one that you touched on. As we work on certain things, we develop expertise on it. We at Infoblox have DNS-specific intel. We have DNS-specific detections. As similarly, there are other vendors doing certain aspect of it. Everyone climbs on the malware side of it or spam side of it or phishing side of it. Each vendors have their own, so user can pick and choose what they want. At the same time, from a DNS-centric, we provide the overall full uh, holistic approach to uh, Intel. So that allows um, a good combination of um, what you want to pick and choose and make it as uh, perfect fit for you. Yeah, because uh, it's not just uh, a bunch of indicators of compromise. There's other kinds of data. And, and like you mentioned, Karthik, it, um, for different purposes, uh, you may need different feeds. And then, of course, we've talked about before, uh, there's open source feeds. There may be some from the government um, that have specific applications that may only apply to portions of your organization. Uh, some of them may be for compliance. Um, the other thing that I recall, of course, having been in the industry for 40 some odd years, I'm not going to go beyond 40. I think that's a big enough number. Um, I, uh, I recall trying to sell uh, to one of our big vendors, they were one of the major uh, airplane uh, builders in the world. And they, they bought, um, I think it was our endpoint solution. And we were trying to talk them into buying our, our email solution and our web solution because we could do it all and managing it so easy. And they finally said, look, the bottom line is we want one vendor to check our email and make sure it's safe. If they miss something, we'd like another vendor's opinion on the endpoint before they open an attachment and execute it. And if they miss, I want a third vendor checking all the web traffic going out to make sure that they don't uh, you know, get a third sanity check on not connecting to places you shouldn't be connecting to. Um, but today we have tools, and I'm going to just touch on this, and we'll move back on because, like I said, we've got, and Drew's point out, we actually have several uh, episodes on different aspects of this. But the big one is that you today, um, it's very common to get multiple feeds and ingest them all together, blend them, normalize them, so that you're actually using kind of a super feed in all those points. So you don't have one vendor at the gateway, one vendor on email. You actually have everybody's thread intel at the email system, everybody's thread intel at the endpoint and so forth that you can uh, use to really kind of optimize what, what you're doing. Um, so let's go ahead and shift then to something completely new and unique. Um, and uh, so one of the triggers for today's topic was the fact that you two have recently been involved over the last few months actually, adjusting a lot of the feeds. Um, now, a lot of people may not realize because we've been using examples of companies that sell, here's my product and here's my feed. And that's the way most security vendors are. But, Infobox is a little bit different. You guys offer dozens of feeds to your customers and they can pick and choose which ones they want to apply uh, or purchase. There's add-ons and things like that. Um, and then also you guys work with third-party stuff as well. It can be brought in. But the bottom line is you've just killed a bunch of feeds. Recently, <laughs> you've added a bunch of feeds. So you've been changing the selections for your customers. So um, let's start though with killing feeds. I mean, why would you kill something? Is it possible to have too much threat intelligence? And I'll start this with uh, Karthik. Sure, Bob. Um, so yeah, um, to begin with, the threat landscape is changing. The threat actors are getting very, very smart and uh, they adapt to how they are getting detected and uh, they try to outsmart us as well. So we have to adapt to those plays. It's just a cat and mouse game at the same time. Um, uh, 
understanding that this environment is changing, allowing us to be nimble on top of it, and then making it more applied as to what currently makes sense. Because we can have as many feeds as we want and leave it growing at eventually all consumes resources. It's going to make the system slower and performance-wise have some impact. So we want to provide both, uh, both the effectiveness of our solution, having them blocked at the right time, uh, the right in incidents, uh, and also uh, ability to give the complete uh, um, uh, performance-oriented coverage for our end users. So it is for those reasons um, we need to be uh, monitoring the situation and then make changes to those feeds. That aside, when our threat researchers detect and add indicators to the feeds, they know based on the threat level severity and the confidence as to how long this indicator is uh, valid that we want to keep it in the system and then look at it. We call that a TTL field, time to live field. So when the TTL expires, we have that inherently in our system. And when the TTL expires, we um, proactively look at the indicator and see if it's still valid and used to do that. So we've been doing this behind the scene um, since it started, but certain feeds, as we talked about in the first point, we categorize and show them different categories of the feed. Certain feeds have, um, have been outdated. They are not happening anymore in the wild um, real world threat. So we want to make room for the new detections that we are seeing and make sure it provides the best effective um, coverage for the end user. So we removed them, but that said, it's not that it's going to be permanently off. We will be monitoring it. We will be watching it. If it comes back and it comes back alive, if the threat actor finds that, oh, it's not any more detected, I'm going to use my old way of doing things, we will be on top of it. So for now, we haven't seen it, we have enough confidence, then that's when we pull the plug. Of course, um, informing the customers and the, the communication channel that you're talking about, me and Drews have been working on. So um, that, that's my take on that with respect to why we need to uh, remove it. It's more of a housekeeping, I would say. Yeah, and, and uh, I remember, uh, I already mentioned, I've been, uh, been on the endpoint AV side of things. And I remember this was, boy, this was, just when internet was coming on before that it was all dial up and um you didn't have the speeds i mean we are spoiled today by the speeds and just sending an update of the virus database could take way too long i'm talking hours measured in hours so we would trim what indicators we had inside our our databases for our endpoint solution in order to make it smaller and more streamlined. And we would remove those things that we haven't seen in a while. Um, and Drews, you were telling me about uh, that, that there was a couple of our feeds that, um, because these time to live that Carthy was talking about, there wasn't anything in them anymore, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, have that, we have this problem sort of across the board. So you know, first thing I would like to, before I drill into that, I'd also like to add on that, you know, sometimes, you know, we're just trying to organize things in a better way as well. So sometimes the contents of some of those feeds made more sense to put into other feeds because, as I said, our, our primary goal is to block things together. Uh, like, if, if, you know, if all these things typically get deployed all at the same time, it doesn't make sense on having them, you know, in two or three different feeds. You can combine them. So, yeah, uh, it has been a, been a process of, uh, of organization. Uh, in some circumstances, yeah, to answer, go back to the original question. Um, we are, and I, I prefer not to give a direct roadmap to, to some of this stuff, but we've been so good at blocking some stuff that we don't see it in the wild anymore. And uh, and as a result, it doesn't make sense to to clog up somebody's system trying to block some of the stuff 
that we know is just not simply out there. And obviously we're not going to say, oh, it's this and this and this because we'll start seeing it tomorrow. But <laughs> but uh, there is that. The you know, Going back though also to, uh, to Karthik's you know, time to live, you know, when it comes to threat intelligence, you know, everything has a different uh, different lifetime. So uh, an IP, a threat intelligence that's associated with an IP address has a very short shelf life. You know, it's easy as anything for people just to move those IP addresses left and right. Uh, so typically when we have threat intelligence that's based around an IP address, it has a very, very short time to live. Uh, host names, domain names have a little bit longer than that, but again, those can have a tendency of changing. Uh, we don't particularly uh, uh, block uh, URLs, uh, full-length URLs, but URLs have a have a longer shelf life uh, sometimes because it's really when when it comes to what we're trying to do, there's a very very difficult balancing act that we have to that we have to play because just this morning I was answering a question uh, fielded from one of our customers that you know like we labeled something as being uh, uh, a malware download site. But you know, when he checked it out, it was actually a, a mattress uh, reseller, and you know, like, how could it be bad if it's you know if it's clearly non-malicious? Well, the thing is, is it can be both. <laughs> uh, it can be you know a compromised website. Uh, you know, the the owner of it may have no idea that they've been compromised, and they're now serving up uh, malware, and we have to make that uh, that decision and balance against you know how much of a risk is this to the public, and then how much of a risk is it that we're going to be taking somebody's business down? Now, if we found that same malware and it was sitting on Google Drive, and trust me, that happens all the friggin' time, <laughs> but we find malware that's uh, sitting on Google Drive, we're obviously not going to block Google Drive for all, all of our customers because you know all of our customers would end up um, you know going down for some period of time as a result. So we always have to make that very careful decision on what is uh, what's appropriate to block and what's not, and uh, and that's also going to factor in. Some of this time to live. If we feel like it's a it's a site that uh, that had a legitimate purpose, and it's they were just unfortunate to you know get uh, you know, basically infected with something and uh, and compromised. You know we don't want to put them in the penalty box for a year. Uh, so that's going to affect some of that stuff as well. So yeah, there's there's time to live for for you know a lot of these different threat intelligence. The length of time is going to depend on the type of threat intelligence it is and other extenuating circumstances. And uh, and we're going to, you know, again, we're going to try to organize that in terms of our different categories of threat intelligence as much as possible to make sure that, you know, we're combining things that are relatively similar. You know, like this, you know, somebody, if they're going to block you know, one thing in there, they're probably going to want to block all of it. And all those things have roughly the same time to live, et cetera. So, um, I think that yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that uh, that you hit on a lot of different points, but actually both of you have. I remember um, like the things that no longer work. Uh, again, when I started out, one of the most popular viruses was a boot sector type virus. I mean, today we talk about rootkits, but if you can get on a boot sector, that's even before that. Um, but then both Apple and Microsoft came out with updates to the way their OSs work, and all of a sudden that that's impossible. And so an entire class of malware disappeared almost overnight because people were rolling out. I say almost overnight because there was a lot of people who don't like to pay for the latest OS. And so they were still running the previous OSs for years. And those guys are still susceptible. Um, and on your note about where you don't really want to block a particular 
a host just because some of the people using that service are uh, are you know have malware in their feeds. I do remember one example again years ago where a uh, an Italian hosting service they also hosted every little town newspaper and things like that and the bad guys actually breached the hosting service to where they could compromise any account and they were just um, you know putting malware and moving it from one account to another until eventually the whole security world got together and basically said okay <laughs> here's a host we're just going to block the whole host they all agreed uh, that that was the right way to do. There was one of these little conference calls that uh, they all said, look, you're my competitor, but we as a group need to make a stand here. Um, plus the fact that that particular host um, uh, didn't have a whole lot of hygiene and they didn't really care what people put on their website, so they weren't really policing it themselves. Um, I think that changed the way a lot of uh, hosting services work. Again, also making it harder for uh, the bad guys to find places to put their malware. Um, and so, uh, yeah, those some great, uh, great stories that I can think of all being ticked <laughs> off by the things you're saying here. Now, one thing you did allude to, and we use this to segue to why we introduce new feeds, um, is one of the way that a feed might become less effective or not effective is not the right word, but the things that are in it, we might move things out of it because we now have another place where they should be. A good example. Um, would be not just when we change how, you know, as an industry, we change how we categorize things. That happens a lot. But let's just say um, you guys introduced earlier this year a number of suspicious categories. These are sites that you don't see something malicious on right now, but because of other things like who registered it. It was one of 8,000 that were registered at the same moment by a bot. There's a lot of different things that you guys use as indicators, and you put them in this suspicious list, things that kind of, you know, this is, this is not looking kosher the way this site came into existence, even though there is nothing really bad about it. But when they do become bad, you take them out of that suspicious category and put them into the appropriate, this is a bad site, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I was going to say, so let's use that as a segue and talk about, because um, I gave an example of those three feeds. Matter of fact, let's, let's start with those. Um, uh, Karthik, uh, on the three suspicious, new suspicious categories, uh, pick one and talk about why all of a sudden suspicious data, because everybody's been pretty much black and white, you know, these are the sites you should, you know, block, and these are sites that you might want to put on a, on, a, on a white list and allow, and, you know, they don't deal with the gray area, but you guys are starting to deal with the gray, so uh, why don't you talk about what you did there? Yeah, sure. Um, so dealing with the gray is needed because the way um, how far our intel is, that's uh, somewhat uh, um, tells how we work on uh, to be ahead of the curve. So in this case, what happens is uh, we will talk about uh, three new feeds that we added with respect to suspicious, uh, NOID, and we also have lookalikes. But we will go with the suspicious that you started or the NOIDs I will talk with and then hand over to uh, uh, Drews for the suspicious part because NOID gives a starting point for it. With respect to having new feeds added, as you talked about, um, we have means to keep an eye on the market and then look at how um, threat actors are behaving and how they are um, bypassing the system or the detections that we have or other detections in place. And we try to understand their behavior. In case of NOID, uh, NOID is basically newly observed emergent domains. And uh, so these new domains, what happens is like, um, the moment they register, uh, typically um, threat bad actors use them for um, uh, used to use them for uh, distributing their malware and uh, using the DNS uh, infrastructure to uh, uh, spread it across. 
but they learn uh then when we had, when they were blocked they learned the process and they tried to um um delay it uh, you know like a strategically delay it so that okay they can bypass and then they were um uh, system adapted to it the detections and uh, tried to understand delay it till 30 days and try to find if they can block then then quick, they also adapted real, real quick before you get too far down that path i want to really hit on this because you you mentioned it and i think it's an important thing that a lot of people don't realize they tend to think of bad guys have a new attack and they launch it but here you're talking about where they register uh domain they may even set them up but it could be weeks or even months before they actually do anything bad correct absolutely, absolutely. so initially uh the historically if we go they they used to do that wherein they register and then immediately dis, uh, distribute their malwares and make it malicious and attack and so that uh, before you would even know these domains when you access it or through phishing emails and stuff, you would get victim of those uh, um, new domains. But later on, as the system evolved and we were able to determine those phishing domains and stuff, um, they adapted to the detections and they moved strategically delaying those uh, distribution. And then um, they typically have 30 days or even six months down the line, as you said, uh, they, can, they can delay as much as they want. But the system needs to evolve to this. And that's something that I'm going with how we detect these things. So with respect to, uh, and, and they also socialize sending few packets down the line to make sure the passive DNS see those things and try to be good uh, in the eyes of those uh, DNS um, uh, monitoring systems, and then try to um, uh, send their malicious content down the line. So they can become uh, dangerous down the line, but we don't know when. So we have this new means to make sure we can adapt to when um, they become malicious by using these emergent concepts. So it, other detections that in the market do it at a specific domain, uh, specific uh, registered context immediately, either when they are registered or um, 30 day, 60 day kind of a timeline, those are okay to begin with, but it's not as good as an emergent context. As we are in the middle of a several DNS traffic that we monitor, we have this luxury to monitor these things and know when these uh, domains are becoming very active and the moment it becomes active that's when we know they are new domains the moment these new domains become active that's when we go ahead and add them to our or our noed list noed per se are the newly observed emergent domains the noed per se are not suspicious to begin with but they are new domains again given the sensitivity of um, each organization as a uh, Drews was talking about if it is a point of sale system, a target or Home Depot, they don't need to visit these new stuff. So they can have policies to really block these NOED stuffs. At the same time, as I said, all NOED domains are not suspicious or they are not malicious yet. We have different means to find who the suspicious actors are and which could be suspicious, which yields to the next set of um, new domain, new feeds that we're introducing, which is a suspicious, which NOED also has. I'll let Drew talk to the suspicious part of it. Well, I, I want to clarify though, because I think a lot of people are familiar with newly observed domains, not. And but what you're talking about is noed, the emergent piece. How is this different than just a nod feed? What how would you summarize the, the key difference? Sure. The nod would be a newly observed uh, domains, which is either at we have seen vendors doing at the registration time, getting it directly from the registrar. As any time a new uh, domain gets registered, they gets added to the nod feed as to this is a new domain. You need you may or may not um, you know block it. But at the same time, there is another um, set of vendors who used to uh, do it at a 30-day level or a 60-day level, 
so delaying themselves um, so that if the threat actor is not immediately uh, making it uh, spreading using it to spread the malware or any of the malicious content then we can do it at the, after 30 days uh, uh, wait till 30 days and try to see what they do and then add it so we don't see um uh, we, we don't see much um effective or we don't see that to be very effective we see that now that as we are monitoring that many domains and we can keep an eye on when they become very emergent like a hockey stick the it's not just one or two queries are resolved for that particular dns query as we see that many users are accessing that that means they have um uh, they are at a point wherein they are ready to deploy that um dangerous stuff so uh, we want to make sure we capture that moment and then add it to our um suspect or um, malicious content site so and block it right. because that is where it is very effective yeah well i'm going to go ahead and segue to Druce and let him comment on that but when you do Druce, let's clarify because there's um the newly observed domain something just created but they may not have actually put the site on they just registered a name then there's the emergent aspect then something might be suspicious and then it might become actually malicious there's like four tiers here you guys are really stratifying this um run with that Drews. <laughs> okay so uh so let me let me uh, go a, a step deeper when it comes to the newly observed um you know as karthik put you know that the first time that anybody ever sees any traffic going to a a, a new domain it's newly observed you know like we just observed it uh what we've discovered is the bad guys, so to speak, are, are weaponizing that thing that we were just talking about, which is time to live. Because newly observed isn't necessarily newly observed bad, it's just newly observed. You know, we have a relatively short uh, time to live on that. We don't want to block those things for a long time. We want to give the, the little bit, you know, just sort of give it an opportunity for us to figure out whether or not it's bad or good. Uh, so what we were finding is that the bad guys were out there and they were just waiting out the clock. They were waiting for 30 days. Uh, it expired off of everybody's time to live and then they make it bad. <laughs> so emergent is not starting the clock when the first time that we see traffic to it, which is often, as I said, you know, pretty uh, benign. Uh, it's when we first start seeing the hockey stick of, of traffic, which means that if it, if it is actually weaponized, you know, it's actually active right now and you can block it safely. And, uh, and, and so we're basically, uh, you know, trying to overcome uh, the bad guys trying to use our own time to live against us. So that's what that's about. Now, having said that, you know, newly observed is not necessarily newly bad, but because we've been going out there and we've been looking at all this stuff, uh, we've discovered that, you know, this new site that we just saw shares a dns server it shares a registrar it shares an ip address it shares you know whatever you like it shares a whole bunch of different characteristics with these five other sites that we absolutely know are bad so we are 99.99 percent sure that this thing is going to be bad we don't know how yet but we do know that eventually it's going to be bad and you should just go ahead and block it and that's where our suspicious feeds come in and i'll, I'll i want to Sort of again, go back to another part earlier on that we were talking about, where you were describing that uh, uh, you know, that airline, you know, the air, air, that air company that will not be named. <laughs> I have a suspicion on who that might have been, but uh, how they had the different you know, circles within circles of uh, of uh, of defense. You know, block it here and block. What they were trying to stratify on their side was uh, Miter's uh, kill chain. 
you know, block this. And then, you know, like you know, basically every, every threat actor goes through a number of different steps to execute a, a campaign. So they start off and you know, they're, they're going to send you a phishing email and then you click on that and then you download uh, ransomware and then that ransomware communicates back and then maybe it's, so there's always a whole bunch of different steps. And the earlier in that process that you can stop something, the better. Uh, you know, if you can stop it as early as humanly possible. So you're starting to hear a catchphrase through the security industry now called shift left. Uh, I've been talking about it for a while, talking about redshift, blue shift, you know, but basically shift left is trying to catch things as early as possible. When you're catching stuff that we're calling suspicious, that is the earliest possible stance that you can actually catch something that's bad. You're catching it while it's in the planning stage. They haven't even launched the attack yet. Sometimes the domains that we're blocking don't even resolve anything yet. And yet we know that they're bad enough that you should be steering, steering clear of these things and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, uh, you know, like, while it's great that you can block command and control or you can block DNS tunneling, if you're blocking those things, that means that you're already you know, you're already impacted. You're somebody inside your network is already uh, uh, compromised, and and you're you're stemming the the bleeding. But you know they still they're still having issues. If you can block it way back at the prime, the part where they're actually planning the attack. Uh, that is the the best case scenario for stopping uh, stopping the bad guys, so to speak. Well, you know, I keep thinking we need to extend these episodes quite a bit because uh, we're already up to time here, and and I know we could keep going. Um, uh, what I'll do is I'll ask our listeners now. This is a podcast, and it's on so many platforms, but we also put this out on YouTube. If you want to go to our YouTube channel, find this video, and provide us some feedback on things you'd like us to dig into more. Um, we'll take your input on, uh, on that guidance, but Drew, so I want to thank you for coming back on the show. It's been my pleasure and like, and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> and Karthik, I want to appreciate you for, uh, coming and, uh, taking the courage to, to be on a show, uh, for the first time. That's always quite a shock. It is, but at the same time, thank you very much for having me, Bob. It was a fun talking about uh, what we do at InfoBlock. So looking forward to other sessions. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for your time as well. Please join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.